Welcome, welcome. Good morning. My name's Zach. I'm the associate pastor here at Groton Bible Chapel. Um, just to, before I get started, today's a little bit of a special day for me, this service in particular, because uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm actually an Irish twin, uh, which means my mom got pregnant five weeks after I was born. So just let that sit with some of you, right? Um, and, and my sister is visiting from Pennsylvania with her kids, and one of, her and my niece are, are right over here. And so I'm just so grateful that they're here. Yeah. Um, I didn't expect them to clap for you. So, um, But anyways, yeah, no pressure on me, but I'm really, really grateful. Um, anyways. Heather and Bailey are over there. Love you guys. Uh, when me and my wife moved to New England, I've shared part of this in the past. You know, we lived in Mexico for a few years. We went back to Southern California for a little bit, and then we packed everything that we owned, which at the time fit in a Prius, and then we took, <laughs> took a 12-day trip. And think about it now, like I couldn't fit one of my kids' stuff in a Prius now with three of them. So, but we, we ventured across the country, 12 days, saw friends, saw family. It was a really awesome trip. There were two places in particular we were very excited to visit that we had always wanted to. We stayed the night. You know, the, the first one is, is the Grand Canyon. Who's been to the Grand Canyon before? We got some hands. Got a photo, I think, of the Grand Canyon. There's, there, there's one photo. Um, breathtaking, massive. You stand there and you just feast your eyes on God's, God's, the magnitude of God's creation. And uh, so we stayed the night. We, I, I didn't do one of those like all the way down there hike kind of things. Not about that. But I, I gladly stood at the top and went to a few different spots and just enjoyed the view. Uh, the second place that we stopped was Niagara Falls. I got another photo there. Uh, we actually got in one of those boats and uh, did the whole poncho thing and went out there, and, and that was a lot of fun. And again, something kind of similar, that in both cases, my wife and I, we had seen pictures and we'd heard stories, but we got to get up close and personal. And you couldn't help but just be in awe of what you were encountering, what you were experiencing, what went into producing, whether by God or by man, uh, these, these feats, the Grand Canyon and Niagara Falls. Today, as we look at John 18 and 19, we see Jesus, we see different people in authority and power get up close and personal for the first time with Jesus. Colossians and Hebrews 1, both, they say Jesus is the image of the invisible God, right? God incarnate, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And so a high priest and a Roman official getting up close and personal with Jesus. And while the Jews had grand expectations, military and political expectations for their Messiah, Jesus wasn't quite what was expected. We would say he's better than expected. But in this particular case, he ends up completely rejected instead. And not just rejected by the high priest, not just ultimately rejected or let go of by a Roman governor, but rejected by one of his closest friends. That's where we find ourselves today, looking at these encounters in John chapter 18. If you're new to the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is the New Testament, last quarter of your Bible, and so you can open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in chapter 18, verse 19. That's where we're going to start. I'm going to pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. I thank you, Lord, for the people who are able to, to join us via technology. I thank you, God, for the people in this room, for the voices we get to hear during worship. God, as we, as we come to you corporately, Lord, and I just pray that during this time you would soften our hearts. God, that you would stretch us, that you would encourage us. Lord, for those of us that need some challenge and rebuke, that you would bring that, Lord, right now. And, and God, that you would just speak to us in the way that we need to hear you and nothing else, God. So may what is true stand, everything else that is not fade, and may you be glorified. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, John, chapter 18, verse 19. It says, The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Now just catch up, Jesus, last supper with his disciples, gets betrayed by Judas, gets taken in by some soldiers. We have the scene where, you know, Peter cuts off a dude's ear, Jesus restores it, Jesus gets taken away, he's brought under a cover night secrecy to the old high priest. Now the, who he's talking to right now isn't the current high priest, his name is Annas, and he was actually removed from office 15 years prior by Rome. But in Jewish law, once a high priest, high priest for life. And so even though he technically wasn't in a position of power, all his sons, he had, he had son-in-laws and high positions of power, he was the default person who was looked up to at the time. So they went to him first. And so he's questioning him. Verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I've always taught in the synagogue and in the temple. Jesus is making it clear, you've had chances to come at me in front of people. You couldn't handle it. Where all the Jews congregate, I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus, saying, is this the way you answer the high priest? If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? I just, I love the attitude of Jesus here. I just feel like he could be wearing a shirt that said, come at me, bro, as he's, as, as he's having this encounter. Um, then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. What we're gonna do is trace out Jesus's encounters and conversations over the course of our time together with a brief break to look at Peter and pull some points out for us to digest along the way. First, what we see and what Jesus is, is making a claim to and wanna pull out of this passage is that Jesus is perfectly consistent. And in contrast to the people attacking him who are not. What do I mean by that? Jesus goes out in public, and who he is in public and private is the same. It doesn't change. So they bring him in under the cover of darkness. Jesus talks about the law openly and is willing to go back and forth with people. In this particular case, it was against Jewish law to interrogate a defendant. You had to bring in witnesses. So what the high priest is doing in charging Jesus and breaking the law, he's breaking the law in order to do it. It was also against Jewish law to attack or to physically hit someone who was a prisoner. Romans did it, Jews weren't allowed. And yet you see it again in this scene. You see the inconsistency of the people who are coming at Jesus. And yet Jesus, perfectly consistent. The Jesus you meet in private and public are exactly the same. Sorry, I'm like dancing around the water bottle. I just wanna sip. Perfectly the same. 
You encounter Jesus in a context, you're not gonna get a different Jesus in another context. Anytime you meet Jesus, you meet the real Jesus. He doesn't change. Jesus is perfectly and unceasingly consistent. He has nothing to hide. He stands firmly with all that he's spoken. Jesus is consistent. And as I read through this and thought about what Jesus is saying about himself, I couldn't help but ask the question this week, are we and why not? You know what the opposite of consistency is in the church? It's hypocrisy. Which one of those terms do you hear thrown around more publicly in reference to Christians? Yes, this, this question in the New Testament we're called on multiple occasions as believers, and particularly those in leadership, to be above reproach. What does that mean? It means to live a life consistent with what you proclaim, to live a life consistent to the God that you follow, to live a life consistent with the Savior to whom you've surrendered. Consistency. Are we consistent? If the answer is no, then why not? As I thought more and more about this this week, I feel like the major area where we struggle, maybe it's just me, is the need to cast ourselves as perfect people. Hear this, church. Our problem isn't that we fail. Our problem as Christians is that we spend so much time trying to hide it. That's why the world calls us hypocrites. It's not because we're broken, but because we spend so much time hiding the brokenness. You know what consistency is in the church? You know the kind of consistency that we're called to in Scripture is treat sin like sin so that grace can be grace. What does that mean? It means I'm a flawed, failed, broken person, and when I mess up, I can actually confess and repent. It means when I fail a friend, I can go to that friend and I can actually apologize. It means when I'm wielding bitterness against someone, I can go to them and let them know, hey, I'm feeling this, I'm sorry, this isn't right. And out of that repentance and confession can come restoration and redemption. But for some reason, we get this thing, we get this pressure in the church. You gotta be perfect. You gotta wear the right mask. Even during COVID times not talking about physical mass, you know what I'm saying. You gotta talk the talk, you gotta walk the walk, you gotta dress the dress, you gotta be perfect and don't you dare come in here with your imperfections because you're gonna make people uncomfortable because they're working really hard to hide their imperfections. Our friendships need this kind of consistency, our marriages need this kind of consistency. I'll tell you this, my marriage I could probably draw a graph, draw a, bar, a line. My marriage improved as in my marriage, we apologized more and faster. That's just how it rolls. And again, not just for what we've done, but what's going on in our hearts. Our kids, parents, our kids don't need to grow up with perfect parents. Our kids need to grow up with parents who can get on a knee when they've messed up and say, I'm sorry. Our kids need to grow up with dads who after they've spoken harshly, get on a knee and say, I shouldn't have done that. Kids don't need perfect parents. They need parents who are utterly dependent on the grace of God. So as we strive for consistency, that's what it is. Treat sin like sin 
so that grace can be grace. Jesus is perfectly consistent, but we're not, and we fail. In the very next section, it shoots to a different scene in which one of Jesus' closest followers is doing just that. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, you were one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, said I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. So just get that. Peter cut off a dude's ear. Jesus healed it. And then one of that dude's cousins comes at Peter. Hey, aren't you the guy? Didn't I see you in the garden with him? He says. Verse 27, Peter denied it again. Immediately a rooster crowed. Number two. Peter's fear captures our own fallenness. Here's the thing about Peter. We've talked about this in the past. We went through 1 Peter last year, the year before. Peter was a bold and brash guy. Peter had seen a lot of things. And when you see Peter denying Jesus, you have the question that I always ask, would I have done the same thing? Peter was the guy who watched the miracles happen. Peter was the guy who watched people get raised from the dead. Peter was the guy who walked on water. Peter was the guy who just hours earlier told Jesus, they're gonna take you, I'm going to the death. And Jesus says, actually, you're gonna deny me three times. That was Peter. And so as I look at this and you just, I see the fickleness of man in contrast to what is really the faithfulness of Jesus. That as Jesus is fearless before these officials, we see Simon Peter, who you thought was gonna be just as fearless, fall and succumb to fear. But here's why I'm encouraged by this. Because when one of Jesus' closest friends rejects, denies him, what will come about in a little bit is eventually Jesus will meet up with Peter again. And he'll ask him, do you love me? And Peter will say, yes. And he'll say, then feed my sheep. And he'll say it again. And he'll say it again. And the word Peter, Greek, Petros, for rock. And Jesus says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And so you see this guy, Simon Peter, who does this, who abandons and denies Jesus, who knew him better than seemingly anyone else, that ultimately, even though he would abandon Jesus, Jesus wouldn't abandon him. Because there are people in this room for whom whatever the reason, distance has been cast, you feel between you and God, between you and Jesus, and you need to know Jesus closes that gap so that you don't have to. Peter's fear captures our own fallenness, but there's no such thing as falling too far. After this scene, we're brought back to Jesus and the high priest. It doesn't go into depth about, about him being delivered to the second high priest. He had that conversation with Annas. Annas dropped him off at Caiaphas. We don't really hear a lot about that. But in the next few verses, Caiaphas brings him to Pilate, who was a Roman governor. Because Jews couldn't do capital punishment. They couldn't execute someone. And so the Roman governor says, well, what did this guy do? And Caiaphas says, we wouldn't have brought him to you if he wasn't guilty. Worst answer ever. 
And so Pilate decides to have a conversation with Jesus. And that's where we zoom in next. 33. Pilate went back into headquarters. He summoned Jesus and said, are you the king of the Jews? Now here's what Pilate's trying to do in this particular circumstance. Pilate is trying to discern how much of a threat Jesus actually is. Pilate's in a little bit of a sticky place. The Jews were largely treated very different by Rome than all other areas of conquest. The Jews were a very stubborn people. They had to do things their way. So Rome gave them a lot of latitude, but they still had a Roman governor. They were still taxed. The Jews were known for uprisings, and they had some nasty uprisings. That Rome had to send a lot of people, and a lot of Romans died because of it. However, Pilate... His main guy on the inner circle in Rome had just passed away two years earlier. So Pilate is lacking the political connections he used to have. He doesn't have a lot of leeway. And so he feels the tension of, I can't manage an uprising, that at the same time, I need to make sure I go do this by the book. He's feeling that tension. And so Jesus before him is being, being, being called someone who's, who's, who's an insurrectionist. That's where we are. Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? I love that Jesus doesn't answer his question. And Jesus does this sometimes, right? Sometimes you go to God. I didn't say this last service, so this just jumped in my mind. You go to God with a question and God's like, sorry, that's the wrong question. I'm gonna give you the answer you need. <laughs> Uh, it drives us crazy sometimes, but it's real. What does Jesus say? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this. I've come into the world to testify for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. What is truth, said Pilate. After he'd said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. Why did he say that? Because he did not perceive Jesus to be a threat. The word kingdom that Jesus uses here, right? Point number three, thing that sticks out here, Jesus talking about his kingdom and the fact that, that Jesus' kingdom is not a threat to Caesar's kingdom. Why? Because God's kingdom operates differently. That's our next point. And the word kingdom that Jesus uses here, basileia, where we get the word basilica from, Jesus uses is not one that focuses on territory or landmass. It's not zeroing in on a particular domain or nation or people. The word focuses in on the notion of rule or reign. Jesus is making a statement about his own kingship. And his kingdom is not a threat to Caesar. His kingdom operates on a different plane than the kingdom of man. And Jesus is making that very, very clear. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, writes, the kingships of this world preserve themselves by force and violence. If Jesus' kingship finds its origin elsewhere, it will not be defended by the world's means. And if it resorts to no force and no fighting, it is hard to see how Rome's interests are in jeopardy. 
If Jesus was after earthly power, he could have had it, but he wasn't. If Jesus was after worldly authority, he could have grabbed it, but he didn't. If Jesus wanted his kingdom imposed on the civil and political landscape of his day, he could have made that happen easy, but he did not. His kingdom isn't of this world. Sourced in a different place, operating in a far different way, on a different plane. And one of the difficulties of Christianity in the church over the last 1,700 years, I guess you could say, is that if you hold these two kingdoms in tension, the kingdom of man, presidents and prime ministers and emperors and kings and queens and parliaments, and the kingdom of God, and you look at the, the force and the authority and the rule and the, the operation of these kingdoms, where we've run into trouble as the church is when we've tried to force one unnaturally upon the other. What do I mean by that? God says in multiple occasions throughout scripture that, that the political authorities of this world have been handed to us for a particular time in a particular place for a particular reason. They have a function, his kingdom is different. But at times, there have been times in which kings and emperors have tried to rule the church. And it hasn't ended well. It makes the church look more like a political bureaucracy than it does a missional movement. And in times in which kings have made themselves the head of the church, and likewise, the church has done a great job of pushing back. When secular authorities have imposed themselves on the church, the church, for the, for the most part, over the course of history, has batted that back really well. But there's a, another kind of tension that's happened that we haven't done a great job with. And that's when we take God's kingdom and try to force it upon by ruling the earthly kingdom. What do I mean by that? When Constantine, the Roman emperor, became a, became a Christian, people disagree whether he was or wasn't, he made it favorable in the Roman Empire for the first time to be a Christian. Do you know what happened as soon as it was politically favorable to be a Christian? in which Christians came into power and exerted the force of Christianity upon the empire from a political perspective. You know what happened? Christianity became immediately watered down. People became Christians in order to find power, in order to achieve positions of power. It wasn't a movement trying to change hearts. It wasn't about surrender. It was about positional authority. In more recent history in the United States, what's happened? Some of you are familiar with cultural Christianity. Some of you from the Midwest or from the South, perhaps, in which to be a Christian means you block off Sunday morning, you vote a certain way, you own a gun. That's what it means to be a Christian. Cultural Christianity, in which we're ruled by a behavioristic form of Christianity. The kingdoms aren't kept separate. Christianity no longer being about surrender, but instead about a certain kind of cultural behavior. One of my favorite preachers that I follow down in Texas, we actually use some of his curriculum here from time to time. He regularly in his sermons, this is in Texas, he regularly in his sermons will, will tell people, if, you, if you're like this, if your life is like this, you're probably not a believer. And in an interview once, they asked him, why are you constantly trying to convince people they're not Christians? And he said, because in the Bible Belt, you got to convince people they're not Christians before you can actually get them saved. 
Because to be a Christian is merely to live here. That's, that's, that's not how it works. God's kingdom operates differently. We have to avoid the temptation to collapse them. What Jesus was starting was something far more powerful, far more missional, far more transformational. And for those of you who are new to the church, I would say the kingdom that Jesus is advocating isn't just far more powerful, but actually far more attractive. Over the course of history, what has humanity had to do in order to expand their boundaries? People in positions of power have sent out thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people out to die on the battlefield, sometimes for very noble causes, sometimes because of mere lusts for power in order to sustain or grow their own personal kingdom. What do you get with God's kingdom? You get the king coming off the throne, taking on flesh, going to a cross, dying the death that we deserve so that we don't have to, achieving the victory that we can share by entrusting our life to him. God's kingdom isn't a kingdom we enter through a citizenship test. You don't enter it by crossing a border or a boundary. You enter Jesus' kingdom by entrusting yourself to Jesus as king. And it's a far better kingdom. God's kingdom operates differently. So Jesus is in this conversation with Pilate. And so Pilate relinquishes him. He goes off. Jesus is beaten. He's mocked. He gets a crown of thorns. He gets a purple robe. Mocking him, mocking his royalty. And Pilate tries to offload Jesus, but they keep coming back and they tell him he's making himself the son of God. They want him executed. And so Pilate comes to Jesus again and they have another conversation. Pilate says to him, because Jesus is quiet, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you? and the authority to crucify you. As I read this, I constantly wonder what's going on in the back of Jesus's fully God, fully human brain. This dude that I could snap my finger and he wouldn't exist anymore is telling me that he, I, just, I wonder. Verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Referring to Judas, possibly Caiaphas. What do we see here? Jesus makes it really clear where his authority is coming from. None of this is by accident, and that ultimately, this is our fourth point, when it comes to all of this, that God is steering the boat. In the midst of the trial, in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the conflict and the tension, that God is steering the boat. At first, I had put God is steering the ship, and I was rebuked because in Groton we say, boat, not ship. So hopefully some military people appreciate that. But what do you see? You, what you see here is Jesus giving a nod to the providence of God. John Piper defined providence, biblically speaking, as purposeful sovereignty. That again, God is steering the boat. We get this throughout the scriptures. That again, that in the midst of difficulty and trial, suffering, that God is, is somehow steering us to whatever the end point is. In Genesis 50, verse 18 and 20, Joseph, who had been 
cast aside and sold into slavery by his brothers who had really endured a, a lot of really bad things, eventually rose to power and was in a position of authority over his brothers. And his brothers are groveling at his feet because they don't deserve anything from him. And it says his brothers came to him, bowed, and said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result the survival of many people because God used Joseph to prepare for a famine. God steering the boat. They didn't see it at the time, but they saw it in retrospect. In Acts 4, 27 to 28, we have a recount here of what would happen to Jesus on the cross. It says, for in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand, speaking to God, and your will had predestined to take place. That in the cross, you have the greatest act of evil in human history perpetrated in the act of crucifixion against love incarnate perfection in the flesh. And yet God was steering the boat. That's a hard thing to remember and to grasp and to hold on to. But I think personally, in my own life, I'm a person who in my personality, I are on the side of needing to have too much control. When it comes to planning my day, when it comes to structuring my calendar, when it comes to finances, I need to be in control. And when things are outside of my control or when plans change quickly, I unravel a little bit, stress out. When hard things happen, when suffering comes, around people who perhaps annoy me, I'm in a place that I don't wanna be. For me, the question is, how do I get out of this? When I'm in this hard place, how do I get out of this? The first question that comes to mind. And yet, for the early followers of Jesus, it doesn't seem like that was the question, and here's why. When we go from needing to be in control to believing that God is ultimately in control, then in moments of difficulty, the first question is no longer, how do I get out of this? But instead, how do I serve God while I'm in this? You look at Peter and Paul and their time in prison, the question wasn't, as they were put there unjustly and unfairly for simply proclaiming the truth of God, the question for the early followers of Jesus wasn't, how do I get out of prison? The question was, who here needs Jesus? Whether it's a layoff, job you don't like, family that you're struggling with. There's a prognosis that came your way recently that was gut-wrenching. Moments in our life when we feel like control has been stripped from us, I'll tell you, there's a lot more solace when we can acknowledge, okay, God, you're steering the boat. What do you need me to do while you steer? It's a different kind of question. That was point four. God is steering the boat. Finally, our last few verses, John 19, 12 to 16. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him, but the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. They're exerting that political pressure. 
Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down in the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, Agabatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, here is your king. Now, before I go on, we got to remember, in Exodus, God rescues his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. He uses Moses to lead them, and he tells them, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. Personal relationship. He gives them the law, and there's a, a personal covenant. And then the people, they mess up, and their, their, their travel plans get delayed 40 years. And so some of us, we mess up too. Hopefully your travel plans never get delayed that long. But they end, end up in the, in the uh, promised land eventually. And when God brings them there, he tells them, Deuteronomy 8, I'm going to bless you so much. Don't get comfortable. Don't forget me. And that's what happens. So they end up in the promised land and they have some victories, but they get very distracted by idols and foreigners and sin. And so while they're navigating all of that, God has to discipline his people. And you see that through the book of Judges as they cycle through man's rebellion and God's grace over and over and over again. And it ultimately ends with the people saying, God, give us a king because his rule wasn't sufficient. They needed a person to do it for them. And so God gives them a king and you have Saul and then David and then Solomon and all of them fail and mess up horribly. They're all sinful. And eventually Israel splits in two and because they keep messing up, they go into exile. But God pursues his people through the prophets and he keeps sending people, reminding them of his steadfast love and affections for his people. And ultimately, he brings them back out of exile. And religious leaders rise up, and what do they do? They take the law and the covenant that God had made, and they put hundreds of their own laws around it so that no one would ever come close to breaking God's law so that they wouldn't have to deal with exile anymore. But that people that God had chased and pursued through all of that history, the relationship that he was going after that entire time, the ones leading that people now stand before Jesus, the ones in charge of shepherding God's people, the ones to whom he said, I will be your, your God, you will be my people. Those leaders are standing before right now, and what do they say? They say, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said, should I crucify your king? What do the chief priests say? We have no king but Caesar. That's heartbreak. And he handed him over to be crucified and they took Jesus away. And Jesus came to die for those people on the cross and for us who need him just as much. What do we see in these final moments as Jesus goes to the cross in these trials, we see a Jesus who's been perfectly consistent. He's the same in public and in private, God in the flesh, love incarnate. He does not abandon us when we're inconsistent. Even when we fail, he doesn't go anywhere. We see that with Peter. We see a Jesus who brings a different kind of kingdom. 
expanding a different kind of kingdom, not motivated by greed, not uh, motivated by ambition or vain conceit, but with love and sacrifice and generosity. And as that kingdom butts up against the world, even as we sense it possibly doing here, we remember in the midst of the suffering and the difficulty and the tension that God is steering the boat. And as I think about them uttering that phrase, we have no king but Caesar. And what Jesus must have felt as he heard that. In my own sin, in my own rebellion, in my own distractions, to use a cliche phrase, what do I do? I I kick, kick Jesus off the throne of my heart and put something else there. He went to the cross, not just for them, but for me. Hmm. He's consistent. He doesn't abandon us. His kingdom is different. And remember when things are hard, that ultimately he's steering the ship, the boat. Bow your heads, let's pray. God, I thank you, Jesus, for facing what we couldn't face and doing what we couldn't do, being what we couldn't be so that we could have what you have, a relationship with the Father. God, I believe there are people here and now who have been trying to put on a mask like things are perfect, like things are good, when they're really not. People who feel bitter, people who harbor hatred and anger. We've gossiped, we've lusted, We've allowed idols to monopolize our affections. We've allowed media to come in and and drain us of our time and making us idle. We, We've been greedy, selfish. God, on on behalf of us, and I would just say, if, if for those who would agree or resonate with any of those, Lord, we say we repent. That's not who we want to be, and we entrust ourselves to you knowing that you're better. Help us, Lord, to live that consistent kind of life. Help us, Lord, to be real with who we are so that people can see your grace through us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.